Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Today's podcast is titled Crime, Law and Order, and Legislative Solutions. Dr. Alex Inkles, Senior Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution, and Dr. Joseph McNamara, Research Fellow also at the Hoover Institution, discuss crime, law and order, and legislative solutions. Listen now, and don't forget to subscribe to get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Every day we see the same phenomenon in intensified form. There are dramatic reports in the public press of events that are basically different kinds of crimes. The public is getting more and more excited. It feels very threatened, not just because of these stories, but because people have a sense that close to home, somehow, crime is invading their lives in ways that they feel it should not. Their response to this may be exaggerated because they haven't studied the subject in depth, but it's natural and understandable. They turn to their representatives in local legislatures, in state legislatures, in the Congress, and ask for help. Congressmen understand public sentiment. That's what they're very good at. They should, of course, always be leaders, but sometimes they're followers of that sentiment. And the result of that is that they're very disposed to adopt all kinds of new legislation, which is designed to make a very good show, at least, of sincerity, interest, concern about the problem but not necessarily things that are either effective in reducing crime and providing the citizen with more security, nor in fact often are they things which are in accord with our Constitution and the principles according to which we live as a nation. Now my question to you about all this as an expert in the area, I'm asking you, are we on the right track or are we off in some wrong direction? Will the things we're doing get the results that people hope for, or will they in fact simply be gestures that don't get us anywhere? I think you're absolutely right. The fear of crime, the perception of crime, is really in contrast to what we're seeing, that we had a significant decrease in crime last year. But the political rhetoric is, I think, exacerbating the public fear of crime. And the reason the public is so frightened, as you indicate, uh, every night on the evening news, uh, a new horror story is shown with a child kidnapped and murdered, uh, bodies being wheeled out from a shooting in Los Angeles or Chicago or New York. Uh, The fact that those atrocities are taking place thousands of miles apart do not register and and the citizen is inundated with violence. Now, unfortunately, the politicians uh, jumped on that. You know, if tough political rhetoric worked, we wouldn't have a crime problem or a drug problem, but we know it doesn't. What I'm afraid is that many pieces of legislation coming out of this eagerness of elected officials to bolster their own popularity by passing laws that are counterproductive will worsen crime. I think a lot of the stuff that we've done from Washington, because that is the center where different presidents, different uh, members of Congress have made themselves very popular by declaring wars on crime and wars on drugs. Now we're all against crime and we're against drug abuse, but declaring a war on it often creates the wrong tone 
and in fact worsens the crime problem and the drug problem. One of the things you said that I think would be a surprise to many people is that actually crime is not increasing, but at least last year we had a decrease. Could you say more about that? I think people would be very interested to know more about that. It doesn't right. agree with we, their perception, obviously. You know, I, I speak, of course, as with one foot in the academic world, but uh, with uh, 35 years experience as a police officer and 18 of those years as police chief of two of America's largest cities. And I started my career walking a footbeat in Harlem and spent about 10 years there. And I've always found the perception of crime and the reality of crime to be different. But I think because of television getting much more efficient and the way in which the satellite and their own new technology enables them to take uh, stories and televise these grisly scenes that occurred thousands of miles away and to bring them into people's living room every evening has definitely increased public fear of crime. But the two statistical sources that we rely on to determine crime rates, the FBI Uniform Crime Reports and the Victimization Study, both show that crime has leveled off. Now, of course, we have too much crime, and I think the public concern is legitimate. We take the case of Polly Class, the little youngster who was kidnapped and murdered from Petaluma, California. That's a crime that touches everyone with a heart because here is a little innocent child, beautiful child, taken from the safety of her own bedroom. Everyone can identify with that. It wasn't a, a case of the parents being involved in drugs or living in a high crime area or some kind of problems in the family. I think that's the kind of crime really that resulted in political hysteria and the passing of the three strikes law here in California, which is actually counterproductive. I think it will result in more violence, not less violence. And that's what we have to do a better job at, I think, not in trying to tell the public, look, there's nothing to be worried about. Obviously, we have very serious crime problems in this country, but we have to try to educate the public on what they are before we can then talk about the best way to address crime. Of course, we need to punish violent people and separate them from the rest of society. But certainly, isn't it better to prevent crime if we can do that? We have some studies, and you are as familiar or more familiar than I, showing what the profile is of people that are locked up in the penitentiaries, violent criminals. And over and over, we see the same pattern, the school dropouts, they come from very disturbed backgrounds. Usually the, there was no father present in the home. Uh, there's early uh, use of drugs and alcohol especially, uh, early uh, sexual practices. By the time they're in their teens, they're getting into trouble with the law. Uh, they're, uh, they're getting arrested. They're beginning to get sentenced. And you can see a lifetime of failure being set up. So we need to 
to find ways to try and intervene. It's to try and prevent some of that from happening because sure, after someone commits a murder or a terrible violent crime, we want to lock them up. But what about the victim? The victim is already harmed and the family and the fear that that creates is already established. So it's so much more important that we not concentrate just on this punishment but also take a look at some things that make sense in terms of trying to prevent some innocent person from being hurt in the first place. But that doesn't seem to be as attractive politically at the moment both parties seem to be trying to outdo each other in being tough on crime. And I'm afraid when you talk about wars on crime and you put the idea in people's minds or in police officers' minds that they're some kind of soldiers in a war, what you'll get is the kind of police conduct that really creates disrespect for the law. The police themselves begin to commit crimes, such as what you saw in the Rodney King tapes in Los Angeles. That kind of behavior becomes commonplace when the police think they're in some kind of a war. What we need is to recognize the fact that we're talking about a sense of right and wrong, a sense of values that have to be given to children early on. In today's society, it seems that many of these kids are getting the wrong sense of values. I mean, that's my feeling from working uh, the streets of Harlem, where I saw youngsters, 13-year-old girls, uh, having their first child. They didn't want that child. They didn't even know sometimes that they were pregnant. They had no ability to nurture that child, no desire to nurture that child. You didn't have to be a great criminologist to understand that the odds were that that baby being born would lack the attention and the care and would get into drugs and crime and violence, the street code very quickly. That's what we're dealing with in America. That's the truth that no one wants to face, that a lot of these kids from inner cities are born into an environment and into a peer group where if they don't commit crime, if they don't get into trouble, they'd be abnormal among their peers. You've raised uh, in the last things you said, three big issues. Uh, I think they could keep us going a long time, but uh, maybe we could take them one at a time. The first thing that you said that I think many people will find a surprise is that the laws that are being adopted and the actions that are being taken in the public realm to reduce <coughs> crime or to fight crime or to conduct what you call the, and others have called the war on crime, that that's going to be counterproductive. Maybe you explain that a little bit because most people I don't, I feel don't see that. And uh, uh, they think that that these are obvious ways to go and that they're likely to be effective, otherwise they wouldn't be pressing for well, them. Well, take the drug war. The uh, political appeal of being against drugs is overwhelming, but the drug war itself causes a great deal of the violence. The killings and shootings that are occurring are occurring over turf wars between dealers. They're not being caused by some dope user who's out of their head and getting violent. That's a very rare part of those uh, violent statistics. And so you have to question that approach. If we really want people to stop using drugs, maybe we should be paying more attention to prevention, education, treatment. treatment. Now, we've, under the drug war, quadrupled the number of people in prison in the United States over 
I'd say the last 10 to 15 years, we have something like a million three hundred thousand people in confinement of one sort or and another. And that's about the highest rate per capita in the world, isn't it? That's true, even higher than South Africa. Now, the fact is that about 60% of them are incarcerated for nonviolent crime. So when the public is yelling at politicians, legitimately yelling, you must do something to stop the violence, the politicians, instead of doing that, are putting more people in jail, which is very expensive. It's expensive in two ways. It's expensive in terms of the taxes we pay, but it's also expensive because the money taken from other things, for example, here in California, as you know, we're closing schools. We're increasing the size of classes in the classroom to build more prisons. Now, some politicians would say, oh, no, no, this money is separate, but it's not separate. There's only so much we can do. When we spend a lot of money locking up nonviolent people and we get the police and the courts and the prosecutors to put all their resources into nonviolent people, then some of the violent people will escape. They fall through the cracks. If you take the poly class case, the person accused of the murder of that child was let out of prison eight years early. Now, what the politicians don't tell the public is support all this tough talk on crime, uh, long mandatory sentences for nonviolent crimes like drug dealing, we have to let some violent people out early. So you let someone out eight years early who has a, a record of violence against women. It just doesn't make any sense. And that's what I feel the challenge is. We have to get the facts out. The three strikes law in California and the one presently in Congress unfortunately, doesn't focus on violent offenders. We will have uh, to build a lot more prisons just here in California. The estimate from the nonpartisan analyst was that we'll be spending $8 billion to construct more prisons. Now, when we quadrupled the number of people in prison in the United States, we didn't get much of a change in either the rate of drug abuse or the rate of crime. So there's something wrong there. I mean, you would think if you locked all these people up, there would have to be some impact on crime. But in fact, it indicates that there's much more to this. I think you've targeted something very important. In fact, that's how I'd sum up what you're saying, is that if you want to fight crime, you have to know how to target the key <clears throat> ob objects that are out there that are producing the most crime or producing the kind of crime that is most disturbing to the community. And that a lot of what we're doing now, especially I think in my view, in the general elaboration of the so-called war against drugs, which I think is more important than the war against crime in the, in, in the uh, political realm, and which I think by and large has to be understood to have failed in its purposes pretty much. Uh, but concentration in that realm leads to the kind of thing you're describing. In fact, this whole process could be characterized as something which produces a lot of unintended consequences. We mean by that that while you're trying to achieve some purpose <coughs> that's proper and legitimate, in fact, you have side effects that you didn't intend that undercut the whole purpose of your operation uh, and, and uh, uh, make your effort on the whole quite ineffective sometimes not just ineffective, but cause it to do things that you wouldn't want to be doing. In that connection, I wonder if you'd comment on the most recent situation where in order to find guns in a public housing facility, something happened that seemed 
not just ordinary yes. search and seizure, but actually ended up violating basic constitutional rights and privileges. Yes, the, the Taylor Homes uh, Federal Housing Development in Chicago had been the scene of so many shootings, gang, primarily gang shootings and drug-related shootings, that some of the tenants there actually asked the police to search apartments. Now, the Fourth Amendment is very strict on that. The police can search only if they get a warrant approved by a judge under some reasonable grounds of suspicion. However, the police did sweeps of these apartments. And what's interesting is they didn't find very many guns at all. I think they only found about 20 guns through thousands of apartments in that housing project. And the shootings didn't diminish very much. But some of the tenants quite justifiably said, wait a minute, we resent you busting into our apartment and disturbing us and searching. We're not common criminals, we're people, we're citizens with rights. And they went to court and a federal judge issued an injunction and said that the police could not do that. Now, here's the point of it. The police said they were doing it because of their need to protect the safety of the people. But after the judge issued the injunction, the police did what they should have done and the government did what it should have done in the first place. They assigned a lot of police there and the shooting stopped. The police do, under previous court rulings, have the legal authority to pat someone down, to frisk someone in a high crime area that's suspicious like that, so they could have stopped the shootings. But instead of doing their job efficiently, they hid behind the Bill of Rights and said, that's the reason we can't protect the people. Now, in the end, that disrespect for people uh, runs against the values that we want to teach youngsters right from wrong. It's kind of police stormtrooper tactics. The shame of it is the president of the United States, instead of guaranteeing those people who live in a federal housing project the level of protection they deserve, he directed the attorney general, the head of the Justice Department, to find ways for the police to search apartments. Now, the agency that investigates police violation of civil rights is the Justice Department. And the president asked them to find ways to let the police circumvent the Constitution. Now, I'm a tough cop. I believe in good, firm policing, and I believe in punishment and so on. But I also know from my experience that no police can succeed without public support. And if the public can't tell the good guys from the bad guys, if the police are violating rights and seen as criminals, what do you do? How does the public respond to that? I think one of the most poignant moments that I had in my career came a couple of years ago after the Rodney King tapes were, were shown and the police were acquitted. I was on a program with a black minister and he turned to me with tears in his eyes and he said, Chief McNamara, after the, that acquittal, what do I tell the young men I work with? All my life I've been telling them to respect the law, not to see the police as the enemy. What do I tell them now? The point of it is that in the long run, the government must obey the law itself. We have a very famous court decision in which uh, the courts stop police violations of the Constitution 
Map versus Ohio, way back in 1961, and one of the justices wrote, the fastest way a government can destroy itself is by not obeying its own laws. And that's a very shocking thing to have the president of the United States disregard the Bill of Rights and say to the attorney general who's supposed to enforce that Bill of Rights, find ways around it. I think they're losing sight of what it's all about. Crime really is the violation of the code of conduct, a set of values that we agree on through our elected officials. That's what a democracy is all about. When the government itself doesn't pay any attention to these laws, it can only create disrespect to laws. What do we say to young people if they perceive that the police themselves are violating the laws. The point you made gets us into a very big area. It's, I think it's the most important in this whole topic, and that is to understand what are the causes or roots of crime. Now, I don't agree with you entirely in the last statement you made. I mean, I certainly feel that it is essential that the government, before anyone and anything else, must show respect for the the laws of the land, and that it is very corrosive if it does not. But I don't imagine that what the government does about observing the Constitution has very much impact on those areas or parts of the larger community which most generate the largest amount of crime. So I think we have to look to other factors. Now, you hinted at some of them. Uh, uh, the basic fact is, is it not that if you take all of the crime which appears in the standard crime statistics, a very large part of those statistics are accounted for by a very small number of factors. And those factors include especially such things as living in certain types of urban communities, which communities themselves are characterized by a whole host of factors that are often thought of as being causative, as being the the, the, the milieu, the environment, which most <clears throat> stimulates, or if it doesn't stimulate crime, at least, which is least effective in imposing constraints and controls on people, internal constraints and external constraints, which would keep them from committing crime. Uh, uh, in terms of your experience and what you know about this subject, how, how do you, in the first place, I guess I want to ask, is this impression correct? Is it not the case that a small number of people produce the overwhelming proportion of all crimes. And isn't it the case that these people tend to come from certain types of background? And that that would suggest that part of the solution lies in changing the environments which produce these effects? Well, as you know, and I know, there are crimes and there are crimes. If you uh, cheat on your income tax, that's a crime too. But when we talk about crime in general in America, we're talking about the kind of crime that gets the public upset, which is the violent kind of crime or someone breaking into your home, or this, this fear that can be engendered. Well, we'd uh, start at the extreme, which is homicide. Right. Now, most people don't realize some of the very important facts about homicide such as, for example, the fact that the overwhelming proportion of homicides are not random shootings. 
They're not the kind of thing that happened when someone walks into a theater uh, and shoots right. a lot of people or <clears throat> goes into a store or a restaurant and locks everybody up in the back and shoots someone uh, while they're in, in the uh, cold storage room, but that the overwhelming majority of homicides occur between people who know each other, uh, very often family members. Another curious fact is that most homicides occur not throughout the week as you thought you might think they would, but they occur only in certain times in the evening hours and overwhelmingly over the weekends. And that's because presumably that's the time when people who know each other well are drinking or having convivial uh, experiences which turn sour. And then someone either pulls out a weapon or runs home in excitement having been insulted and pulls out a weapon and shoots someone. So about 90% of all the crimes of the homicides are of this type. Uh, 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 but the kind that the public tends to focus on is a, 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 the more extreme type that I mentioned. <laughs> well, that's, that's I, I think part uh, of the process. I think we that's have to go true through. that uh, that that people are frightened by crimes that really don't relate to their lifestyle, um, and they they fear the stranger to stranger. Now, unfortunately, there has been a change, and there is more random crime, and indeed, the murder rate, uh, the clearance rate by the police has dropped. Markedly, it used to be uh, well over 90% were cleared because what the detectives would call the mom and pop homicides. Uh, people would be drinking on the weekend, there'd be a uh, long history of uh, abuse of uh, one or the other or both in the family. And uh, you're quite right that this historically has always been in, throughout our country, uh, even if you go back as far as we have records, has been more of a problem in the inner cities where the poor people live. Now, the poor people who live in inner cities now are primarily non-white, but at the turn of the century, we had many Irish uh, in New York City and places like that, and their crime rate was extraordinarily high. But gradually, the groups begin to develop a sense of values that is similar to the wider community to, to take on, uh, for want of a better term, the Anglo-Saxon uh, view of work ethics and, uh, and law-abidingness. Uh, and I think that comes back to what I was saying, that uh, this is a very hard uh, message and to sell if the perception is that the government itself and the cops themselves are, are criminals. That has to be dealt with. You can't just ignore that and preach the young people, look, even though the police are pulling armed robberies in uniform of drug dealers, you have to stay in school and you have to uh, obey the law. You can't steal things and you must listen to your teacher and uh, try to get a job. Uh, it can pervade the whole uh, society. We can't just say, this is what you should do, even though our elected officials and the police themselves are breaking the law with impunity. Uh, sooner or later, you have to come to balance that. I think the difficulty now that, that people shrink from is that we have, in many cases, a breakdown of what was building up in this nation of immigrants, the gradual movement of groups of people into middle-class values away from the lower-class uh, values which had drinking and crime and violence as part of the normal life. And I think we really need to come to grips with ways to help change the climate in the inner cities that 
breeds so much violence and so much crime. Uh, crime has increased, as you know, in, in the suburbs and rural areas as well. But still, the disproportionate amount of crime has always been in inner cities. And race now complicates that factor because of a lot of racial stereotypes. I have a very uh, clear view of this, having worked uh, for so many years with black people. And I think no one's victimized more than black people in the United States by crime. Uh, and that's something that the wider society doesn't realize. Yes, because either. the victims of crime are generally people of the that's, in a community and true. of the same background as those and, who commit the crime. So blacks are the chief victims right. of black crime. Now, we know that the number one cause of death for black males is homicide. Uh, we know that there is a disproportionate amount of crime committed by young men in general and young black males in general. I think part of that goes back to the war between them and the police. Early on, if there's that, that kind of attitude and action by the police, these kids do develop a self-identity of criminals, of being the enemy. And many of them are arrested over and over again, as you know. However, I think unless someone adopts a biological or genetic or racist theory of criminality that says black people are more uh, predisposed to commit crime and violence than white people, I think most of us would reject that out, out of hand. There's absolutely no basis in science for that, such an That's assertion. true, but you know that many people do feel that way and, and they're not honest and, and they don't speak out. The racial stereotyping is very damaging. Now, if you accept the fact that it's not true, then we have to look to other causes. Why is this crime occurring? And a lot of people don't want to do that. They feel if they look for reasons why this is happening, they're excusing that kind of behavior. And I think that's one of our problems because we need to understand why this is occurring. But some people feel if we look into it, it's almost like we're excusing that kind of behavior. And you and I know that that's not true. If a doctor has to operate uh, to cure a heart condition or cancer, he has to study the problem. And I think our society has to study this problem of crime and of violence before we can cure it. Well, I completely agree with that. I think I would add that uh, there are two patterns, not one. You mentioned the one which stresses that people often have the sense that if you look into the causes of crime, <laughs> you're tending to excuse it. There's another part of the population trying to be very defensive of their own communities who feel that if you're looking at the problem and you focus mainly on their community, that's in part a way of <clears throat> condemning their community. Mm -hmm. I think both of these groups are making a very big mistake, right. not only from the point of view of the larger society, but from the point of view of their own community. I think you're seeing a change uh, there. And, and I think uh, it wasn't just uh, black civil light civil rights groups uh, that for a time felt, gosh, people are so prejudiced against us already, we don't, we don't want to hold this up to, and to look at it. Uh, but it was many white uh, social scientists felt the same way, that there are so many bigots already condemning uh, people who are minorities that we don't want to give them any more ammunition. And it's a touchy area to get into. People fear being called racist and bigots and so on. But I think there's been a healthy 
change. The NAACP, for example, in a conference last year said they have to focus on this uh, matter of black-on-black crime and on violence. And some of the other individual leaders in the civil rights uh, movement are saying that they need to come to grips with this and they need to to recognize that even among minorities themselves, these stereotypes are growing. Uh, There was a statement attributed to Reverend Jesse Jackson that he was returning home in the District of Columbia and heard footsteps behind him and turned around quickly and uh, young men were there and he said, oh, thank heavens they're white. Uh, Now, I think, uh, and as he qualified that statement, he, he, he was saying that we need to to recognize that we've got to do more to intervene to the extent that we can to try and change the patterns in the neighborhoods where those kids are growing up. They grow up in very tough crime-ridden neighborhoods and we've uh, got no easy formula. Uh, As you know uh, so well, there's no single root cause of crime that we can pull out and say, well, if we just do this, this person won't commit a crime. But on the whole, cumulatively, we do know that a lack of education, the disturbed uh, family background, that early association with people who use drugs and who commit crime uh, makes it highly likely that youngsters will get into trouble. Now, how we cure that is another, another question. But I think it's a question that deserves attention. Instead of paying some attention to that area, we seem to think that we can establish a police state and simply lock everyone up. The three strikes laws, by the way, are going to be so costly because we're going to have um, the analysis that I'm looking at here shows that about 80% of the people in California now facing uh, life in prison are for nonviolent crimes. The third felony was stealing a bicycle. Uh, um, A man who lost his job stole some meat from a supermarket for his son who had uh, cancer. Uh, That was his third felony. Are we really going to lock these people up for life? Yes, under this mandatory law. And not only is that inhumane and counterproductive and a violation of our sense of fair play, but it's very costly to to lock people up for life and to pay taxes. I mean, how much are we going to pay? If we take a look at the enormous cost of this and say, suppose those billions of dollars were given to businesses to locate in inner cities and provide jobs and job training for that community. See, I think that's a question that deserves to be at least asked. It's not an easy answer, and it's one that you have to be very careful not to be naive about. But no one's asking those questions. We're just building the prisons, despite the fact that for 15 years, as we've increased the incarceration rate dramatically, it hasn't shown any great benefit in reducing crime or drug abuse. Well, people tend to do that which they know how to do or which they find easier to do. Building prisons is something that's a clear-cut operation. You know exactly what you have to do to build a prison. That's one reason why this happens. Whereas reducing the unemployment rate, which is extremely high amongst adolescents in these communities, that's something we don't seem to know exactly how to do. How to keep a family together, which is 
one of the factors involved. Because well, these I'd, I'd want to interrupt you there <clears throat> for a moment because I think uh, we do get a lot of uh, language now from Washington about traditional family values and family and family and family. The fact is there is no family when the, the mother is 13 years old and the father is a 15-year-old boy. That's not a family that's breaking up. It just doesn't exist as a family. And I think we need to be honest with ourselves and say, I feel, for example, uh, that uh, getting some way of influencing those kids not to have children would reduce crime in this country more than all the prisons, than doubling the number of police, than mandatory sentencing, and all the stuff that we're doing in Washington. But it's an area that politicians don't seem to want to talk about. It's not uh, I hate to say it, it's not as sexy as declaring war on crime and building prisons. Oh, I think they talk about it a lot. The problem isn't <clears throat> that people don't talk about it. I think the problem is that we don't have, we don't know the specific mechanism which you would have to introduce in order to achieve the purposes we have in mind. Supposing one accepted your statement that you could make a great reduction in crime if you could eliminate the inc the, the inc most of the incidents in which a 13-year-old girl gets pregnant and has a baby. Uh, how does one bring that about? I think neither social policy nor social science people uh, have very concrete and immediate answers. Well, but we certainly have some clues. There has been some progress made on uh, on birth rates throughout the world by education, by mm. pro providing condoms, by providing uh, uh, birth control devices in poor areas. But I take the years that I was working as a street policeman, and I remember at the time it was illegal to display condoms in a store, let alone sell them to a juvenile. Abortion was illegal. Family planning information uh, was unavailable to people who, who might have been interested in it. And we still see that today in the United States. Politically, a lot of groups are totally opposed to any kind of education in our schools on birth control methods, uh, any uh, uh, expansion of the rights uh, to abortion and so on. These are hot political issues. I recognize that. But I think from a perspective of looking at the social order that we have to face up to certain facts, that we really do have a problem and it's getting worse. I think demographically we can expect the group of people, uh, the, the youngsters from 14 to 24 commit a the, the uh, bulk of crime in our, in our country, that population group is scheduled to increase uh, by the year 2000. And that means pretty much that we're going to have more crime. And those are facts. I mean, it's not something that's a whim and I don't uh, have any specific uh, proposal, but I think these are things that we should be examining and not merely talking this law and order nonsense and building more prisons and saying everything will be fine if we just hire enough cops. It doesn't work that way. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.